Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really excited to have with us Dr. Daniel Owens. Dan is a lecturer and researcher at the Research Institute for Sport and Exercise Science at Liverpool John Moores University. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. Is, yeah, thanks very much for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to come on. I'm really excited to talk about this topic of vitamin D because I think there's there's a lot of confusion and a lot of you know a lot of information that can get a little bit put out of context with it. So I want to sort of keep a nice tight context around athletes in particular. But first, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you yeah, do? Absolutely. So as you introed at the start, I'm a lecturer and researcher at Liverpool John Moores University. I'm a sort of sports scientist by training. I did my degree there and then uh, went into research predominantly. So I worked in Paris uh, for a couple of years at the Sorbonne University. Mm-hmm. But throughout my career, I've also mm-hmm. worked in elite sports as well. So I got my sport and exercise nutrition register accreditation in the UK, allowing me to practice in elite sport. So I've worked in a number of different sports providing uh, nutritional support for, for some time now. And I still actively do that alongside my, mm-hmm. my role at the university. And I suppose vitamin D has been the key research theme for me throughout my throughout my career. Mm-hmm. It was what my PhD was on. And it's now what my research group predominantly focuses on as well. So it's it's been a real key theme for us and something we're passionate about. Mm, perfect. Uh, can you tell us which sports you're working yeah, with? Yeah, so at the moment I've, I've I work across a couple of different sports. So uh, Formula One, which is a new one for me uh, over the past couple of years, it's been mm. a fantastic challenge, real cool challenge because there's a lot of different mm. considerations than I was used to, to working with in the past, environmental mainly. I work with mm-hmm. footballers or, or soccer players, depending on where you are in the world as well. Um, and also with some boxes as well. So, um, yeah, we have a nice little mm. nice little spread of different sports. And in the past, I've worked in rugby league, rugby union, and again, soccer, football. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, it certainly is a different spectrum. <laughs> Motorsports through to a weight-making sport yeah. <laughs> and anything in between. Okay, excellent. So... Today, we're looking at the topic of vitamin D. So can you start us off with what is vitamin D? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think uh, you touched on it before by saying the confusion around, around this vitamin starts actually with asking what it is, because it's not really a vitamin, so to speak. It's more so like a steroid hormone, which I think sometimes makes people sort of sit up and go, a steroid hormone, you know, we think of vitamins as things that we get in the diet, which is true, but unlike other vitamins, we don't predominantly get vitamin D from the diet. We more so get it from sunlight exposure with a small contribution from the diet. So I think, you know, the, the easiest way to think about it is it's more, more something that is influenced by our behaviors and our environment more so than the diet like other vitamins. Okay. And what does it do? Yeah, so that's a great, that's a really good question. And there isn't really a single role for vitamin D in the body. We'd say it's pleiotropic, meaning that there are many functions for it. I suppose the most 
well understood role for vitamin D is in regulating our calcium absorption in the in the intestine when we get it through the diet. And that's critical mm-hmm. really because we control calcium in our body very tightly. So if we don't get enough vitamin D and therefore calcium absorption is, is quite low, we need to get it from somewhere else and we start taking it from mm-hmm. our bones, hence why vitamin D is often associated with, with bone health. But apart from that, it regulates our innate and acquired immune system as well. So it's one of the most mm-hmm. established roles for vitamin D. And what my group has researched over you know, the past years is the role for vitamin D in our muscles. So we've been looking at whether it influences muscle function, the function of our mitochondria, um, and the repair and regeneration of our muscles after sort of damaging exercise as well. So there, there are many different roles for it. Um, many different tissues can use vitamin D as well, telling us that it, you know, it can, it's got m- many other roles than just helping us get calcium into the body. And the calcium that comes into the body, I, I think most people associate that with bone. As you said, you know, if there's not enough, then we take it out of our bone. But it's also really essential for muscle contraction. Absolutely, isn't it? yeah, it's fundamental. It's 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 probably the most important what we would call signaling molecule in the body. So it's not just about mm-hmm. our bone health, but it plays so many different roles in making sure that cell function is is doing what it's supposed to do and as you say quite rightly calcium is crucial for for muscle contraction as well so that's where kind of the the link between vitamin d and muscle contraction first started to um, be investigated because of that because of that causal link with vitamin d and calcium and it does seem Mm -hmm. that at the at the very low end of the spectrum where you have severe vitamin d deficiency there can be some decrements uh, in muscle function. So uh, it does seem like vitamin D through calcium handling can have an effect on, on muscle function. Okay. But it, you think that maybe it the body will pr- prioritise the role of calcium in different areas and if there's not enough being absorbed through the gut because there's insufficient vitamin D that basically the, the um, consequences mostly associated with the bone rather than decrements in in other functional areas. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, the reason for that is just because bone is the the biggest depot for calcium in our body. So it's the easiest way Mm. in which we can, which we can um, raise blood calcium concentrations when they start to drop. Where are we going to get it from? The main place that it's being stored in the body. Mm-hmm. And so the effects or what happens when you have a deficiency, obviously one of those effects is on the bone. So are we looking at you know osteoporosis and, and those sorts of things? Are we looking at fractures? What, what's the consequence from the, that perspective? And then what else might you see in an athlete who's deficient with vitamin D? Yeah, so to, to answer the first question, if you just look at a frank vitamin D deficiency in, let's say, the general population, the, the, the typical manifestation is going to be in adults, osteomalacia, where you have bo- low bone mineral density, and in kids, that would be rickets. So um, if, if anyone's familiar with the rickets epidemic, that was predominantly due to a lack of, of vitamin D in the diet, and they corrected that by giving 
some some cod liver oil, which at the time they didn't know why it was it was having its effect, but they figured out that it was vitamin D. But so you know, in, if we look at that in the general population, that's what's that's what's going to happen. But um, let's say an athlete, for example, there's been a lot of research looking at does vitamin D deficiency lead to an increase in fracture risk. There's some conjecture about that. Mm -hmm. There are some data which suggests Mm -hmm. that there is an increased risk of fracture, particularly in the absence of any other osteogenic stimulus. For example, weight-bearing sports are likely to somewhat counteract that effect. But in sports where there isn't Mm -hmm. weight-bearing, you would certainly see an increase in, in, in fracture risk. But also once individuals mm-hmm. have had a fracture or they might have had a break or whatever whatever it might be related to bone that puts them, let's say, in hospital, we do know that there are poorer outcomes, for example, from surgery, poorer bone healing, if you go into that event with low vitamin D. So even if it wasn't yeah. the cause of the fracture or the reason that you ended up having to go in to get something repaired, if you go into that with low vitamin D, your outcomes are poorer six, 12 months down the line. And it's thought that even if we try and correct it at the point of surgery or after surgery, that doesn't seem good enough. It seems that you need to go into that with with enough vitamin D. So for me, the practical message there is we try and manage vitamin D levels to make sure that they are always where we want them to be. So that if there is this adverse event a fracture or a break, for example, that you're in the best possible scenario to recover. And mm. yeah, that, that basically just requires um, good management of vitamin D status year round, rather than trying to correct right. something once it's already happened. Mm-hmm. And so what are you looking for there in terms of how do you measure adequate vitamin D status? Yep. So it's typically done through uh, blood sampling. So the main marker that we look for is a metabolite of vitamin D, which is called 25-hydroxyvitamin D or 25-OHD for short. And Mm -hmm. that's historically been the main marker of vitamin D status because it's quite stable in terms of its half-life. So it's got a much longer half-life than, than some of the other vitamin D metabolites. And it's generally a good mm-hmm. reflection of how much exposure to vitamin D you've had through sunlight or through the diet. There are There is a bit of debate at the moment about whether it is the best marker, but for let's say for the sake of, of, of giving a clear and concise answer, that's what we would look at. And we would typically... Mm-hmm. Uh, if we took the U.S. Institute or Academy of Medicine guidelines, they would say that anything below 50 nanomol per liter is inadequate. Anything below 30 is deficient. Yeah. And anything below 12.5 is severely deficient. But plenty of research mm-hmm. in the past 10 years or so suggests that probably what we're trying to look for for most individuals would be a level above 75 nanomoles per litre. That seems to cover all bases, not just bone, things like immune system function, so on and so forth. So in my practice, I would be looking at, does the athlete have a 25-OHD above 75 nanomoles per litre? If not, let's look at intervening at this point. Right. And so when you say that the 
25-hydroxy or 25-OHD is reflective of current status. How long a period do you think that's reflective of? Like how often do you think people need to test vitamin D levels? Is it three months, six months, two weeks? Like how long do you think that's reflective? Yeah, it's it's a really good question that I don't think has a really good answer to yet, at least from a research perspective. So there are a couple of things to consider. You know, the half-life really is going to be anywhere around two weeks or so. So if you just stopped doing anything after a couple of weeks, you're going to start to see a decline in in vitamin D status. Mm -hmm. Um, But some studies have shown that if you maintain good vitamin D status through the summer, it'll carry you through a fair amount of the winter months where we don't have any exposure to sunlight, particularly here in the UK mm-hmm. anyway. So we try and do it on a, depending on budget, which is the other factor as well, and something that I'll, I'll pick up on a little bit more in a minute. But we would try and do it every three months, let's say, particularly in the winter. In the summer, mm-hmm. I don't believe there's a great need to do it because the risk factors are quite low. But during the winter, if we can do it, Three mo- every three months, let's say, at the start, halfway through and towards the, the back end of the winter, then we're kind of making sure that we've got athletes at all of the key points where you know we might be able to detect something that we'd like to intervene with. But the problem mm-hmm. there is, again, budget. So as I mentioned before, mm-hmm. something I'll come back to, a piece of research that we've been doing over the past year or so has been a little bit out of my comfort zone, but it's more qualitative research where we've tried to figure out what are the the perceptions and practices around testing and supplementing with vitamin D in elite sport. And for those okay. individuals who or practitioners who found that there to be barriers to testing, one of the key ones that sticks out is is, is always budget. It's the allocation of, of the right amount of funding to be able to say, yes, we can test our athletes at these different time points because the supplementation is cheap, very, very cheap, but the testing can mm. become expensive. So it really depends on, on budget. Mm. And so if someone was restricted with budget in countries where they do have to pay for this particular test to be done, and and perhaps we're only limited to once a year, then considering you said before that if you have good levels through summer that that can carry through winter, is the best time to test at the end of summer or when, like if someone could only test once a year, when would be the best time of the year to test? I would be more inclined to do it in the winter because what you're going to find at the end of Mm -hmm. summer is that especially if individuals have spent enough time outdoors, had enough healthy sunlight, safe sunlight exposure, they're just going to show up with normal vitamin D levels and then you think, okay, there's nothing to be mm-hmm. done. Whereas if we measure, let's say, it midwinter and then we're starting to see that some individuals are starting to get low, then you can make a more calculated decision. I would probably take a a more preventive approach anyway by starting in the months where sunlight exposure becomes limited to to start supplementation at that point anyway. But if if, if there isn't a blanket supplementation approach in place and you want to sort of use 
blood to, to dictate what you do or how you practice, I would, I would do it in the winter instead because it's going to be more reflective of where the athlete is currently at and their, and their recent exposure. And so if you were taking that preventive approach, how much do you think is a, an appropriate dose of supplementation? Because that seems to, you know, if you look at the research, there's a lot of research that says, oh, we gave everyone this dose of, of vitamin D and it did X. But, you know, in a lot of instances, the dosing could be titrated to the degree of insufficiency that's there. So what do you think is an appropriate dose if you don't know what the levels are? Yeah, so, I mean, there's been research looking at what the the way I've approached this is looking at the research where it's tried to determine what is an, a daily amount of vitamin D that would result in optimal vitamin D concentrations for 95% of the population. And that shows to be around 1,000 to 2,000 international units per day, which is 25 to 50 micrograms per day. Now, that's a lot higher than at least in the UK what the, what the government guidelines are. I think they're around about 800 international units for adults, which is, which is quite outdated. So for our approach, yeah. we would just go with 1,000 to 2,000 international units per day if we couldn't test. And to be honest, I'm not really sure. I mean, I know from clinical, in some um, clinical papers, they've taken a much higher dose to try and more rapidly bring people back to a, a level of sufficiency. But in our lab anyway, the, published, the publications that we've got show that really high doses just result in a lot of it being broken down or catabolized quite quickly. So I'm not sure there's a, there's an argument for trying to give someone a really high dose of it rather than just starting them on a supplementation plan and sticking to it. Because to be honest, your, your vitamin D levels correct pretty quickly anyway once you start putting someone on one to 2,000 international units per day. So there's no need in my mind right. to really overcomplicate it. I think if we take that approach, you, you, you would get people back into the normal range. I say that with yep. there is a, the caveat of, of working with dark-skinned athletes and certain ethnic minorities, which I believe there isn't enough research on at the moment. And it's something that we really, really are trying to get funding to do because it's just simply the, the research out there isn't good enough to say that everyone should be on the same dose, irrespective of their, of their ethnic background. Right. And... Can you take too much? Like, is there such a thing as vitamin D toxicity and, and excessive amounts? Yeah, there, there are some reports of this, but it seems that you need to take a very, very large amount for a period of time in order to start to see toxicity. So it's, it's generally well tolerated, even up to quite high doses. And the, the clinical reports that are on toxicity, we're talking hundreds of thousands of international units that were taken by accident mm. so it's not something that just like you know by taking a little bit too much on a on a, on a regular basis is going to cause toxicity like you see with other vitamins hypovitaminosis with other vitamins yeah because because you can see what some athletes will do they'll forget 
they, and they'll realise that they forget and then they'll take a whole bunch of it in, <laughs> you know, at the end of the week because they forgot to take it during the rest that's of the week. It, so. That's it, that's <laughs> it. So that's yeah, okay. Yeah, it, it is, but I would I would still say that just try and continue with the normal regimen rather than trying to, trying to make up for it all. You know, another thing on your point there, Liz, that, you know, one thing that is a perception of athletes that I've worked with is that if 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 a little bit of it's good, then a lot of it's amazing and it's going to make you mm-hmm. better in all these different things that, that vitamin D is, is useful for. And that's not the case. It's not an ergogenic aid, so it doesn't improve performance per se. What we're trying to do mm-hmm. is correct for a, a biological deficiency and just get you back into the normal range. If you take more, you don't become better. Mm. You just get back to what you're supposed to be. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that at at the start of the podcast, you said that, yes, you get vitamin D from your diet, but really that's not adequate for most people to achieve sufficient vitamin D status. You know, you see all these new products coming out that have got vitamin D added to them, like orange Mm -hmm. juice and, you know, vitamin D, you know, supplemented eggs and, and things like that. Do you think there's still value in looking at how much vitamin D you can get in your diet or do you think that that really it, it's going to take a massive change in, in diet in order to achieve that adequate amount? Yeah, I do think there is still value in it because I think the sources of vitamin D in the diet are, are, good, are, are good healthy sources of food anyway. We're talking about oily fish, mm-hmm. dairy products, so all of these things anyway, if if, if the athlete, um, of course, eats these types of things or doesn't have an intolerance, they're, they're beneficial to health anyway for the, other, for the other micronutrients and macronutrients they provide. So I still think there's value in getting that message across that we should be looking at those foods to try and, let's say, bolt on to, to our other methods of trying to improve vitamin D. But even the fortified foods, for the most part, it's... It's a very low amount. It's, we're still talking, in most cases, less than 100 international units. So when we think we're trying to get 1,000, mm. 2,000 on a daily basis, um, it can be quite difficult. You'd have to be having quite a lot of these foods in order to, to get you to where you need to be. But I think a combination of a, this sort yeah. of modest approach to supplementation plus including some of these foods in the diet is, is a great approach. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's look a little bit more at the behavioural side of things. What are some of the behaviours that you would encourage athletes to do in order to make sure that they do get enough vitamin D in a safe manner? Because, you know, I come from Australia, it has a big hole in the ozone layer and we have very strong messages around using sunscreen. There's big campaigns around slip, slop, slap, you know, slip on a shirt, slop on sunscreen, slap on a hat, keep yourself out of out of the sun. And and so as a consequence, you know, there's a bit of confusion often between, well, how do I get enough vitamin D whilst also protecting myself from melanoma and, and other, you know, skin associated problems. Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. And even in the UK where we obviously have um, a much milder climate, let's say. The, the public health message in the summer is 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 still to avoid the sun, put on sunscreen, and and so on. And so, you know, it's not that I, I definitely agree that 
there are health risks associated with overexposure to the sun. We should not be allowing the skin to burn. That is without question. Mm. The advice from us is usually that this is at least for the UK anyway, and most European countries that 15 to 30 minutes of arms and legs exposed to the sun during the, during the daytime in the UK in the summer is enough to produce the amount of vitamin D that you need. And if you are more prone to burning, then you should reduce that time. The point is that you do not allow the skin to burn. But some exposure to the sun, if the skin doesn't burn, is unlikely to be contributing to these to this increased risk of skin cancer. And I think it's a very difficult one for, for example, for Public Health England to get right because they're, they're trying to balance two, two things here. They're trying to reduce the risk of something that's very detrimental to health, skin cancer, with, you know, trying to manage something like vitamin D, which is probably less understood by them as well. So for us, we're just encouraging the athletes to seek safe sun exposure, which is basically getting the minimal dose that would require them to produce vitamin D without their skin burning. So that's the key key thing Mm -hmm. for us. And then after that, of course, adding sunscreen, making sure that you protect the skin from burning is is absolutely critical as well. So you don't have to be in it for long. As I say, 15 minutes of just the arms and legs is 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 not much at all. And you will produce several thousand international units of vitamin D by doing that. So it's, mm. it's a pretty easy approach to to get right. But of course some athletes live and train indoors, in which case we have to try and take mm. a, a, a different approach, probably a supplemental approach. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what about in para-athletes, seeing as this is a para-sports nutrition podcast, have you seen much in the way of research or had any experience in whether there's a difference in the level of deficiency with para-athletes or in how they may need to look at their exposure to sunlight? Yeah, so, I, you know, one of the great things about coming on this podcast, Liz, is that it forced me to to look wider at the literature on this and start to think a little bit more about it. And, and one thing that's been in the back of my mind for a long time anyway is why we don't understand the sort of beliefs and behaviours of para-athletes maybe when it comes to sun exposure as well, because there are definitely different considerations mm-hmm. in some groups for, for maybe how they seek sun exposure. So I think that is something that needs to be tackled research-wise. Having said that, I think, you know, we have to think, are there any, firstly, are there any behaviours that might make certain athlete groups spend more time indoors, cover more of their skin? Because that's going to be an increase in risk factor. So it would result in in lower vitamin D concentrations. The other consideration is some of the research shows in, in spinal cord injury athletes that if they are taking things like um, anti-seizure medication, this can interact with the enzymes that uh, metabolize vitamin D, resulting in driving down vitamin D status. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I suppose it's a more niche area, but it's worth knowing that the the anti-seizure medication can drive down vitamin D status, and the research shows that higher amounts of daily vitamin D are needed to achieve the same vitamin D levels. And some of those publications have only been in, in the past few years. So I do believe there is still some way to go to, to make sure that we have good information for, for all athlete groups, to be honest. 
Yeah, because I think, you know, one of the questions I have is, is for example, if you have someone with a spinal cord injury who has their wheelchair dependent and if they did expose their legs to sunlight in a safe manner, do we actually know that they can absorb the vitamin D and utilise that in the same way that someone who has full neural innovation to their lower limbs? That's can? a great question. And as far as, you know, as far as my understanding goes, I'm not sure. It certainly would also depend on blood supply as well. But I'm not sure. I think it's mm. a fantastic question. Uh, and something that, you know, if the, if the research isn't out there, that we, we definitely should do that. But as far as my understanding extends, which might be limited on this, I'm not sure. Mm. And so if you've got someone who's, say, a double leg amputee, for example, and you're, so the recommendation is arms and legs exposure. So would you then transfer that to arms and, and torso 15 minutes exposure like it's it's the total volume of yeah. skin that you can expose exactly. correct so that would be yeah. a great practical recommendation and again it kind of shows the shortfalls of the recommendations out there that are very limited to individuals with both arms and legs right you know if we've got plenty of mm. individuals who are not in that circumstance and then they're probably looking at it thinking well how how does that translate to me so I think that approach would yep. definitely work. And the key, the key advice is, again, not to burn the skin. But certainly, you yeah. know, if, if you do have some, someone like a, um, a double leg amputee, they are going to be at an increased risk for that very reason that there's less surface area of the mm. skin exposed. So it's a, it's a good message to get out that, you know, if there is a reduced skin surface yep. area, we need to try and maximize it if possible. Yeah. And also, you know, if you have someone with albinism, which is a cause of a vision impairment, they, they have often very, very sensitive skin and therefore perhaps they need to be more aware of their own levels of vitamin, vitamin D and maybe go down the avenue of supplementing with vitamin D at, at those one to 2,000 IU levels rather than looking for that skin. Definitely, exposure. definitely. There's, you know, there, 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 is, there really aren't many drawbacks from the supplementation approach. As I said before, it's very difficult mm -hmm. to sort of reach that level of, of toxicity. So getting into a year-round supplementation plan in that, in that circumstance, if, if it's going to cause issues to the skin, I think is a, is a very good practical recommendation. And from an anti-doping perspective, are there a number of vitamin D preparations that are tested for banned substances that you're yeah, aware absolutely. of? absolutely. So at least in, in the UK, there are a number of brands um, and across Europe, a number of brands that go through, in our case, informed sport testing. I'm not sure what the, the independent batch control is in, in, is in Australia, but in the UK, there are quite a few. So it's, it's definitely not hard mm. to, to get hold of them. The brands that we typically look to are the likes of Healthspan Elite. They um, batch test all of their, their, their vitamin D. Uh, Science in sports as well. And I do know these brands are sort of at, at least ship across Europe, if not the world as well. So I'm, I'm fairly sure that no matter where you are, you can get hold of batch tested formulations of vitamin D. Yeah, and certainly in the US, there's a couple of brands that are NSF certified for support tested. So Clean Athlete is one. They have a 5,000 IU dose rather than a 1 mm -hmm. to 2,000. And so I think people can just, you know, athletes can look at 
the dosing and and adjust like if if, if it's 5000 IU would you'd have it every yeah. other day for example rather than necessarily yeah that makes day. sense you know ideally we're looking for a, for a daily approach at least some of our research suggests that sort of smaller doses daily is better but i you know i can't see why every other every other day 5000 IUs wouldn't would would be an issue just in the past we've shown the very high doses of 10,000 plus and given all at once as a bolus dose which often happens in team sports so let's say we get our athletes in the beginning mm. of the week we'd seen practitioners basically giving it all on a monday because they were like it's easier they're not going to forget yeah. but then given like 70,000 international units on a monday and so we decided to look at some of the blood work and, and look beyond just 25 OHD. And we were seeing that, yes, whilst we were driving up that um, 25 OHD marker, we were also driving up breakdown of vitamin D quite rapidly as well. So it doesn't seem like right. a bolus approach at the beginning of the week is, is beneficial. It's better where possible for a sort of smaller dose given more regularly so every day or every other day right okay great and we talked a little bit earlier about bone and i think i we kind of then went into sort of what do you do about it but i think we might have missed what else can an athlete expect to see if they're vitamin d deficient like what other things might they sort of notice yeah in terms of symptoms yeah so i think probably one of the you know the key ones is is an increased uh, risk of uh, infection and illness so there's some good mm -hmm. data out there look in athletes as well importantly showing that athletes with a a low vitamin d status have an, a higher risk of and a higher frequency of infection and illness so basically over the course of the mm. year you're going to lose more days of training more days of competition due to upper respiratory yeah. tract infections and other types of infections simply by your vitamin d status being low and that's simply because it mm. regulates both that first line of immune defense but also our acquired immune uh, immunity as well so you know if you have athletes who are experiencing sort of through the winter, particularly, they're more prone and they're getting minor infections. It could be one of the contributing factors is their low vitamin D status. Other things are a mm -hmm. little bit less easy to, to measure without sort of sp like specialist equipment, let's say. So for the muscle function side of things, it's quite difficult to notice in yourself that, yeah, th there's, there's a small decrement in muscle function or is a small decrement in muscle repair let's say we've only been able to detect mm -hmm. that using our type of equipment in the lab so it's not something that an athlete would sort of readily notice is changing but rest assured it's been shown pretty robustly now in the lab that, that these things can be affected at the real mm -hmm. low end i mean if you if you're severely deficient you're probably more likely to experience muscle aches and muscle pains as well which has been reported in the literature so right. they would be the key ones for me that would be most evident if you've been vitamin d deficient for long enough mm -hmm. perfect so dan can you kind of do a really short summary if you were talking to an athlete or a coach what are what are your sort of main takeaways and recommendations so i would say that in the summer months Try and seek safe sun exposure, 15 to 30 minutes, avoiding burning the skin. 
Um, if you can expose arms and legs, do it. If you can't, try and expose as much of the body as possible to make sure that you can produce the vitamin D that you need. And try and get some oily fish, dairy in the diet if those are part of your of your dietary preferences and you're not intolerant, let's say. In the winter, it's quite mm -hmm. hard to get that vitamin D from uh, the sun because of cloud cover and the low angle of the sun in the sky. So try and take one to 2,000 international units of vitamin D3 per day. And again, try and include those sources of vitamin D in the diet as well to try and, to try and stick on top of that as well. And then you should have adequate vitamin D status year round. Mm -hmm. And if you can get a test yeah, done, get, get one done, at least one done sort of midwinter, if not more Absolutely, frequently. if you can test, yeah. That's all in the absence of testing. If you mm -hmm. can, yeah, midwinter probably makes sense. And if you're low, then it gives you an idea of, of whether you need to supplement or not. Fabulous. Well, thank you. That's, you know, a really cool summary and nice to hear some of the interesting work that you're still doing. I mean, I think the vitamin D research went through a big plethora probably five to ten years ago and it's good to hear that it's still actually being looked at and that you're doing a lot of that work. Yeah, definitely, and hopefully we'll have those those findings uh, that we can try and translate back into practice in the next sort of 12 months or so. So, yeah, stay tuned, and, and hopefully we can have some updated recommendations that might help people. Fabulous. Now, we can't ever let one of our guests go without asking them a personal question, which is what's your favourite food? Oh, my favourite food is... That's, you know what a massive foodie and I and I love so many <laughs> love so many different types of food but I was thinking last night narrow it yeah, down so then. I, I, I will say that <laughs> let's say if it was quick street food type of food I really like Lebanese food loads of flavor loads oh. of different loads of different things loads of different ways of preparing vegetables as well and yeah, I just love the flavours, um, but I could I could equally just say that like I love the way, having lived in France, I love the way the French prepare food as well. So, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so anything other than British food? <laughs> yeah. Although although I got I got you know I used to get uh, take some stick for this in in France, you know that like they would say oh you just eat fish and chips and stuff and. Uh, you know, there is some incredible British cuisine, but I can definitely see why people from the outside look in and just think there's some pretty, pretty boring <laughs> foods out there. Yeah. Uh, fair enough. Okay, thank you so much for your time and your expertise and your ongoing interest in this area, Dan. I, I think you've got a lot of really nice information and really practical stuff for athletes to to consider so thank you for sharing that expertise with well, us thanks very much for having me on liz and i think um, you know congratulations for just sort of you know this this sort of initiative i think it's needed and um yeah look forward to hearing some of the other episodes as well dan's done a great job of summarizing the importance of adequate vitamin d for para athletes if you can't get tested then it appears as though it is very safe 
and economically viable to take a thousand IU per day of a supplement that is tested for banned substances if you're in the testing pool. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you want to leave any feedback, please do so on our website and also feel free to share it with your friends. Please join us next time when we talk to Dr. Amber Donaldson, who is a sports physiotherapist at the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee and works with para-athletes. 